Amen. Thank you, Amy. Lead me to Calvary, lest I forget thy thorn-pierced brow. Well, good morning. Good to be with you this morning. For those little ones up through grade four, you can be dismissed right now to your teachers downstairs. Parents, you can walk down there if you'd like and see where they're going to be. Thank you, teachers, for serving at Children's Church. It's a great, appropriate service if you'd like them to be there. You can also keep them here. We love kids and love to have them up here with us. For the rest of you, you turn your copy of God's Word to 1 Corinthians, will you? You can find a few copies in the chairs in front of you. You can grab that. Those are New American Standard copies. That's what I'll be teaching from. Also give you some verse cues so we can stay together. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 this morning. Because I haven't said it in a while, uh, I'll say it now that at Berean we believe that God's people are best served by God's Word. If you've been in a Sunday school class, if you have been in a Bible study, you know that to be true. If you've been here for any length of time, you know it to be true. And what we mean by that is that just simply this, we just take the Word of God, word by word, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, and we study it. And we cross-reference to make sure that we are accurately handling it or rightly dividing it, as 2 Timothy 2.15 tells us to do, cutting a straight cut. And so that when we're all done, it'll all fit back together as it should. So if we've got the right understanding of the word, it fits in other places, and we can come back and say, okay, we understand what the Lord would have us to understand from it. And as we are studying it, we answer some questions. What does the word of God say? What does it mean by what it says? How does that apply to me? And so that's just a simple approach to the word of God. I do that here so you can see what that looks like, so that your Bible study on a daily basis can be like that. And so I encourage you to be in the Word every day. That is how the Lord designed for it to be for you. There is a Bible reading guide back in the back. You can pick that up. It's a trifold. Stick it in your Bible. It will help you go through the Bible uh, chapter by chapter, book by book, through the gear so that in a year's time you will have finished reading and just start right again after you finish. And today, if you're new, we have been doing that very thing I just described in the book of 1 Corinthians. After beginning the letter by describing to the church in Corinth the benefits they have by the virtue of being redeemed. The first nine verses of chapter 1, Paul begins at that point to address the issues in the church that inhibit the health of the church, hence our own name for this study, God's plan for a healthy church. And from chapter 1, verse 10, really through chapter 16, verse 9, just in this 1 Corinthians book, Paul addresses those issues, and some of them are pretty bad. In fact, uh, in the first section from chapter 1, verse 10 to chapter 4, verse 2, unity was his topic. We took a look at that, and he deals with errors regarding division and gossip and all the things that go on, uh, backbiting and undermining the leadership and all those kinds of things which go on in every church to some extent. And so he took care to address that in the Corinthian church because that was a serious issue there. And from chapter 5, verse 1 to the end of that chapter, his topic is purity. So he had to deal with errors regarding immorality inside the membership and what to do in that case. And from chapter 6, verse 1 through verse 11, uh, Paul wanted to deal with testimony, so he had to deal with errors regarding conflict resolution. In fact, taking other believers to court and suing other believers, and he showed that not to be a godly way to approach those conflicts. And so we finished those sections. We've just completed the section from 612 through the end of chapter 7 where we saw that Paul had to deal with the body and singleness and marriage, and then he had to deal with errors regarding the church in immorality, marriage, and divorce. And we looked at Matthew chapter 19 to help understand and supplement our understanding of Paul's instruction to the church. And when we hit chapter 7, we, we were able to see that it became a Q&A 
session with Paul, and that's what we've kind of titled that there in your notes in the center of your, in the back of your bulletin. And that's what it continues to be through chapter 11, a, a Q&A session with Paul, and he in, ends up addressing some writing that was given to him, answering some questions from the church. Now, if you're new with us today, we're at the beginning of chapter 8, and we're going to go all the way through chapter 11, verse 1. And in these passages, we're going to see Paul deal with freedom in Christ and then errors that popped up regarding Christian liberty inside the church. And so that's his issue now, and he's going to take and show the church how to properly deal with their freedom in Christ. And just so that you know where we're headed, uh, chapter 11, verse 2, all the way to the end of that chapter, Paul's going to deal with communion and errors regarding how they celebrated the Lord's table. And so he's going to give some instruction there. And we review that regularly as we take the Lord's table. In chapter 12 through chapter 14, he's going to deal with spiritual giftedness in the church, and then he's going to deal with errors regarding the use of spiritual gifts in the church, and so he has the church to understand how those work amongst the body. Chapter 15, I'm sorry, chapter 16, uh, no, chapter 15, he deals with uh, the reality of faith, and so he has to deal with errors regarding uh, the understanding of the resurrection. And then finally, in chapter 16, he desires the church to be generous with material things, and so he confronts some errors regarding the use of money. So that's where we're headed, and that's where we've been. And if you're new, you're caught up. Uh, if you'd like to hear those messages, you can certainly catch up with them online. Now, God desires to uh, have the purity of the church be apparent, and so he brings Paul along to address the church in Corinth. And, of course, some of that, as I've told you before, will be, help us to avoid those errors, and some of them, of course, will help treat the errors, and as the church reads this throughout the centuries, that has certainly been the case. Now, if you've been with us for a while, you know that we have dealt with the issue of freedom in Christ before. As we went through our verse-by-verse study through the book of Romans, when we hit chapter 14 and chapter 15, uh, we titled that Behaving as We Should, Dealing with Differences, and Paul had much to say about the, to the church about the weaker and stronger brother and dealing with differences there. And we cross-reference these passages in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 through chapter 11. So they may seem familiar to you if you've been with us for a while. But today we're going to dig into Paul's instruction to the church. And again, we remain in the question-answer format that Paul is using as he references these questions given to him in writing from this Corinthian church. So that's going to be really the format. And as with every section that we have covered up until now, we'll find this teaching to be extremely practical and very relevant for the church today. So I'd like you to look in your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. I'm going to read through verses 1 through 13. A very uh, shorter uh, chapter as Paul's chapters go. And we'll come back and address some introductory issues, some contextual issues uh, from history so that we can understand these first couple of verses as we look at them. Look at verse 1. It starts like this. Now concerning, now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. Verse 2. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know, verse 3. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Now here comes the knowledge Paul is referring to. Therefore, verse 4, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world. And there are, is no God but one. Verse 5, for even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, verse 6, yet for us... There is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Verse 7. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Verse 8. 
But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. Verse 9. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Verse 10. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? Verse 11. For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whom sake Christ died. Verse 12. And so, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Verse 13. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Stop right there. Of all the things that have been part of the church since its inception, the wrangling that goes on about different topics concerning our freedom in Christ certainly are some of the most interesting. If you're not familiar with some of the topics, from just my time in ministry, I'll share some of the things that I've bumped into since the mid-80s, and some continue right up until the present time. Is it right for a Christian to shop or go out to eat on Sunday? Some churches say yes, some churches say no. Should men and women be required to dress up for Sunday services? Believe it or not, I, was, I actually pastored a church where in the past, before my time, suit coats, ties, and dresses were kept on hand to help visitors dress appropriately and with proper reverence. Perhaps you remember wrangling about whether women should wear makeup or not. About movies and dancing, should Christians participate in those things? What about modern translations of the Bible? Are they from the devil? Isn't the King James Version the only true translation? What about Christian contemporary music? Isn't that from the world and drums are from the devil? Some of you remember some of those things. Some of you may be out of churches where those things were taught. And there are many other topics I could bring up that have made their rounds in Christian circles and in churches across America. And the reason why they make their rounds is because many of them are not addressed specifically in the Word of God. And we'll talk about that further in a moment. But I want to have some fun with this just for a moment and also point out that this tendency among Christians isn't new. One of my favorite stories comes from a youth worker that I knew many years ago who began serving in a church that had Scandinavian roots. Being a rather forward-looking, creative young guy, he decided he would show the youth group a missionary film on a youth group night. And we're talking about a safe, uh, missions-oriented movie. The projector hadn't been off but just a, a few minutes before a group of the leaders in the church called him in and asked him about what he'd done. They asked, did you show our young people a film? In all honesty, he responded, well, yes, I did. And they responded back to him, well, we don't like that. Without trying to be argumentative, he just responded and said, well, I remember the last time we had a missions conference, our church showed slides. To that, one of the church officers uh, put up his hand, signaling him to cease talking. And then in these words, he emphatically explained the conflict. Quote, if it's still, fine. If it moves, sin. I promise I didn't make that up. <laughs> you can show slides, but if they start moving, you're getting into sin. In 1650, in New Haven, Connecticut, it was illegal to kiss your children on Sunday, or make a bed, or cut your hair, or eat mince pies, not apple, but just mince, cross a river unless you were a clergyman riding your circuit, 
If you lived in Connecticut in 1650, there was no mistaking Sunday for just another shopping day, regardless of whether you'd go to hell for breaking the Sabbath, you certainly could go to jail. Elizabeth Elliot, in her book, The Liberty of Obedience, tells the story of a young man who said to an older Christian, quote, I'm in earnest about forsaking the world and following Christ, but I'm puzzled about worldly things. What is it I must forsake, he said. The response he received was this, quote, colored clothing, for one thing. Get rid of everything in your wardrobe that isn't white. Stop sleeping on soft pillows. Sell your musical instruments and don't eat any more white bread. You cannot, if you are sincere about obeying Christ, take warm baths or shave off your beard. To shave is to lie against him who created us to attempt to improve on his work, end quote. Elliot then responds to that in her book, and she says, does this answer sound absurd? It is the answer given in the most celebrated Christian schools of the second century. And then she asks, quote, is it possible that the rules that have been adopted by many modern Christians will sound just as absurd to earnest followers of Christ in a few years as these do to us 1,800 years later? And what's the answer to that? Yes. There have been questions that the church has haggled about since its inception, and many of them are just as absurd, as Elizabeth Elliot pointed out, as those that come from the second century. And the wrangling went on and goes on because the Bible doesn't address many of these things as exactly as we would like it to address them and have them stated. We like our little compartments where we can just say, well, that's all settled. We know what to do with that. We don't really like to extend ourselves and really have to think through some things. But there are some things in our lifetime, in our culture, as there have been in every lifetime, every culture, that are gray areas. They are not stated in the Bible as right, they're not stated in the Bible as wrong, and so there has to be a decision made about those gray areas. Now, on the other side, we do know that there are some things that are wrong. We don't really have any problem with those, do we? I mean, when we read them, we understand what it says. The Bible gives some clear negative commands not to murder, not to steal or cheat or commit adultery or lie or sue other believers or sow discord or use profanity or think too highly of yourself and on and on and on. We see those things. And the New Testament has a long list of the works of the flesh. And in Corinthians and in Galatians, we have some of those lists and we find exactly what we're not to do. And the Bible gives us some clear positive commands too. And you know what those things are. They're very clear. There are a list in the Old and New Testament of good things to do, things like loving your neighbor and helping people and giving your money and, and meeting people's needs and doing right and taking care of your children and loving your wife and all those kinds of things are all positive. And we looked at that uh, long list of those uh, some time ago. And, and, uh, but here's one of those places where we see the negative commands and the positive commands kind of mixed together, just to give you an example. We looked at this a number of years ago as we were in chapter 12 of our study in Romans. Here's what Paul says, let love be without hypocrisy. And you can see the negative and positive commands as they interact together. Abhor what's evil, cling to what's good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Don't lag behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and don't curse. Rejoice with one another. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, be of the same mind towards one another. Don't be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what's right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. 
And so you see that interaction of negative commands and positive commands. And we are all right with that, because if it's right into our compartments, we can stick them right in and say, OK, we understand that. And then, you know, of course, and in the middle of all that, there are passages that can help us make gray area decisions. And we're going to talk about those in a little bit. But 1 Peter 1.5 is one of those places where it says, Now for this very reason also apply all diligence in your faith. Supply moral excellence. That's you supplying to your faith moral excellence by the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. And in your moral excellence knowledge and in your knowledge self-control and in your self-control perseverance. So these are ways that you can make right decisions. These are things that are actively going on in your life. And in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and that's some interaction that goes on between fellow believers, which can help you certainly make uh, those gray area decisions, as we just saw Paul talk about in 1 Corinthians, and about love and how that uh, measures out uh, some restraint on our self-control. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that that gives you some tools to work with. Philippians 4, 8, another place that give you some tools where you can help make those, that can help make those gray area decisions. Philippians 4.8 says, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is good report, if there's any excellence and if there's anything worthy of praise, dwell on those things. The things that you have learned and received and heard and seen to, in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So there's some areas where we can see the negative and positive commands interacting. We can see areas where it's just negative commands in lists of works of the flesh, and we know what that means. And we can see positive affirmation of what to do, things that you should be involved with. And you see those interacting, of course, and then we can see some passages that give us some tools to help us make those decisions. And so there are many things that are expressed clearly in both negative and positive. But in the middle of those clear commands, there are those things that the Bible never comments about. Things that are in that gray area, where in every year, in every society, in every culture, every environment, there has to be a decision made that may be only for that time and only for that place. See, Because it's going to be interacting with your culture. It's going to be acting with perception uh, of the culture. So these things are very important, and they're decisions that have to be made, and you have to think through them. So how do we decide what's good, what's not good for us? How do we decide what... Uh, freedoms we have that we can use and what ones we need to put on hold. How do we know what's right and what's wrong in those gray areas? Uh, Those things that just, they're not wrong, they could be right, how do you know what to do? How does a Christian know whether to do them or not? There's freedom there to choose, so are there any principles we can follow? And the answer to that is yes, there are. And some of those principles we're going to find right here. And some of those principles we found in Romans 14 and 15. And some of the ones from Romans 14 and 15 will be reinforced here, and we've already learned them. And so you'll be able to kind of reinforce how you go about making these decisions. And at the end, I'm just going to give you kind of a list that will include some of the things we've talked about and a way that you can just approach it for your own records if that's helpful for you, things that I do and that I've learned over the years to help me make these decisions about freedom. Now, just to prime our thinking a little bit, the early church was dealing with this right from the start. This is not something that's popped up now in the modern church. Uh, the early church was dealing with this from the beginning. And Acts 15 really documents that for us. Uh, and I'm going to put it on the screen. I can, maybe perhaps you uh, don't think about this too often, but part of our freedom in Christ, we are free from the ceremonial law of the Jewish nation. Uh, I'm pretty sure when you were on your way to Berean this morning, you were not thinking about the lamb that you were going to sacrifice. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that you weren't guarding what you were going to eat today, that you were going to say, okay, no pork today, no lobster, and some other things we're not going to eat. Okay? And, and probably you were not thinking about keeping Rosh Hashanah or, 
or the Feast of Trumpets, which is next week, or in how your family was going to keep that. You, that probably didn't enter in your mind. Now, it could have, and it wouldn't be wrong, as long as you understood its implication in the whole of Christianity and that it doesn't play a part in your salvation. But, and it would be okay, and that'd be one of those gray areas where you could do that. But as a believer, you're not under the Jewish ceremonial law. So you don't have to keep it. When the church was founded, there were many Jewish things that they didn't need anymore. And so they're working through all of that stuff. And did you know that when the Council of Jerusalem met in Acts 15, they had a very long discussion about those kinds of things? And I'm just going to give you two excerpts from it, and you can catch right away the direction that I want to go with this so you can see what's going on. But in Acts 15, we see in verse 1, it says, Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, there's a big problem right there, right? Because we know how salvation comes, by grace through faith. And so they're teaching wrong doctrine, all right? So that's not hard to refute. We understand how that goes. And so uh, verse 2 says, And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with him, obviously. No, we're not going to teach that, Paul says. And he walks right in there like John Wayne and just kind of straightens the whole thing out. Or the rock or whoever it is your walk right in there and straighten everything out guy, all right? So you have some people coming down and really affirming, you know, uh, that in order to be saved, there are a few extra things that has to be done. And, and so uh, how to be saved and what happened at salvation is clarified in verses 8 through 11. It's going to fix all of that, okay? Paul says, listen, that's not how salvation occurs. We're not going to lay a local bondage on those people coming into the church that our forefathers couldn't bear. Salvation is by grace through faith, and obviously they are saved because the Holy Spirit's doing the work in their lives. They have this big discussion about that. And so they say, okay, you know, the Gentiles have been admitted into the church. It's a new day. Old ceremonies are done away with. Now you go out and have a great time with the Gentiles. Uh, But then they say, let's add a few things. And this is what I want to draw your attention to. In verse 19, it says, therefore, it's my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, Peter says, but... Verse 20, that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. Why? I mean, other than abstaining from fornication, which wouldn't be new to the Jew and was a prohibitive law, so we already know that that was a no-no. The other stuff was what? It's a gray area, right? The believer's not under the law. The believer's not under ceremonial law. And Paul just got through saying that the idols are nothing. And so there's no idol, there's no other God, there's only one God. And so they give them these gray area guidelines. And so the apostles tell them, you know, refrain from things that were in the idol's temple, things that were strangled to death and, and from blood. And the reason for that is that there were many Jews in the community who would be what? They'd be offended. And so you have a principle there, don't you? of what to apply in that day and time, at that point in the church, when what, these things were going on. So the apostles get together and say, listen, we agree on this. Make sure that these things are part of your life, and these things are excluded from your life. And some of them are gray areas. In fact, the majority of that list are gray areas. And it isn't as simple as whether it's a gray area and you could do it if you want to. In some ways, it comes down to who does it affect? So no doubt, there may be some things that are all right in themselves, but if you do them, they will wound somebody who thinks to do that thing would be wrong, to sum that up. And you can imagine that people say, but, you know, doesn't it say in 2 Corinthians 3.17, now the Lord is the the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty? 
And in Galatians 5.1, you know, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. Doesn't it say that in the Bible? I mean, isn't that true for us? We have the right to have liberty, don't we? And in James 1.25, but one who looks intently on the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. Doesn't it say those things about our liberty? Don't we have some kind of obligation to exercise our liberty? And I'll say to you, as we'll get to it later, just like I said to you in Romans chapter 14 and 15, nowhere will you find that your liberty in Christ is a chip on your shoulder you're walking around hoping someone will knock off. It's always the stronger brother who takes care of the weaker brother. Not that the church should remain weak and that it never moves to where it should be a liberty, but that on a day-by-day, instant-by-instant basis, if there has to be some give, the giving is done on the, on the behalf uh, or for the benefit of the weaker brother by the stronger brother. So yes, it does say those things. Is it that you're supposed to put that on and kind of wear it proudly about and hope somebody will confront you so you can say, hey, you know what? The Lord's the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. This is my liberty, and I'm going to do it if I wish. And here's the thing. Those three verses I just gave you are likely the exact attitude that Paul's dealing with in the Corinthian church. And he's going to affirm the liberty, and then he's going to show the limits to liberty Not by making a big list of do's and don'ts. Don't do this, don't do that, don't shave your beard, don't wear shorts, make sure you wear a a suit coat to church and don't have any, you know, contemporary Christian music and and, and don't ever go see a movie and never dance. He's not going to say any of those things, okay? He's just going to guide the Corinthians by a higher law. 1 Corinthians 8, 9. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. That's what he's going to tell them. So he puts the... He puts the the pressure of making sure that this liberty of yours is not used improperly on the one who understands the liberty. So there can be an unintended negative result of the use of liberty. Paul says, take care that this liberty of yours did not somehow become a stumbling block to the weaker brother. Now, not weak in saving faith, just weak in understanding what you received when you came to faith. And 1 Peter 2.16 says, act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as a as bond slaves of God. So there can be an intended negative result of using your freedom, and that is to do evil. So Peter says there's an intended wrong use of freedom to cloak and do evil because you say you're free. And there's an unintended result of using your freedom, which can be that you cause a weaker brother to stumble, that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, 9. Now, we saw from Acts 15 the principle of effect. Who does it affect? And that is the principle that Paul's going to start with as we start 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And remember, this is a Q&A with Paul, and their question here obviously has to do with meat offered to idols. Obviously, they understood from Acts 15, and either by oral tradition or somebody had come from that church, they understood what was going on and, and what the apostles had said, and how does that apply to us, and how does that apply to the knowledge we have and our freedom in Christ, and so Paul's going to deal with this. And in verse 4, uh, this is a gray area, and Paul's going to explain. Therefore, he says, look at 1 Corinthians 8, 4, your copy of God's Word. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and there is no God but one. Let's stop right there. In other words, the main contention, the main argument, isn't even an argument. No God is making the meat unclean. No God is making it unfit to eat or anything else, other than the false God is making the meat cheaper. And we're going to see that in just a few minutes. So this is a gray area matter. 
But there's obviously been some wrangling about this issue in the church. So Paul's going to clear it up by placing the bar not at personal freedom and whatever you want to do for yourself, but what effect your personal freedom will have on other people. And Paul will show that love becomes the basis by which you should evaluate the impact of your actions. Now look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and we'll look at verses 1 through 3, and then we'll give some historical background here, and, and I think that you'll enjoy this. Now, he says, verse 1, Concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. So there's a knowledge going on about what goes on in the idol temple. There isn't a God. It doesn't make the meat unclean, all that stuff. Paul says there's a knowledge that's out there, and it's correct. It's not a false knowledge. It's correct. There is no other God. There is no God in there defiling the meat that's going through the idol temple. Okay? He says, knowledge, though, makes arrogant. Love edifies. Now look at verse 2. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he's not yet known as he ought to know. In other words, if you just have the knowledge that nothing in the idol is making the meat unclean, and that's all you've got, your knowledge is falling short. There's some more that you need to understand. In verse 3 he says, but if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Now, look at verse 1 again. Now, concerning things, sacrifice to idols. Now, that becomes the theme. And you can see this. It really brackets chapter 8 through chapter, eight through chapter 10. And so you can look at chapter 8, and you see that, and you go to chapter 10, and you'll see him bracketing it again. He brings it right back in about idol temples. And so in between is all the explanation and the application of freedom in Christ. And perhaps as you look at that, now, concerning things, sacrifice to idols... That sounds irrelevant at first. I mean, we're not making any sacrifices to idols. But it is happening in America, and certainly in other parts of the world it does occur. Uh, the church where I pastored in Florida had sacrificed animals tossed into the churchyard several times a year. Thrown on our front steps, blood splashed in other places, and we, we had to deal with that on a regular basis in our church in South Florida. And so... Some places in the world, for believers, it's literally practice. Some believers have to deal with non-believers and pagan cults uh, sacrificing around them. So uh, for every believer in every age, uh, there's some very relevant facts here that deal with this whole sacrificial system that are going to govern lives and actions and help believers make gray area decisions that they'll need to make. So it's not just disconnected from us because we don't know anybody who's sacrificing. It certainly occurs here. It certainly occurs in other parts of the country. Some churches have to deal with it. So it is relevant in that respect, but it's much broader and has a greater application just than that. Now let's look at some historical context today. See that first sentence. Corinth during this time had a very heavy Greek influence. And they worship part, uh, the, the Roman gods made their way, Greek gods made their way into the Roman culture, and Roman culture uh, adapted many of this stuff. And so Corinth and the Corinthians worshipped many gods, very polytheistic, and had a very tentative understanding of the demon world, believed there were many evil spirits as well, and talked about those things, and many times sacrificed or had uh, some of their celebrations in, in the name of a god to ward off evil spirits from contaminating the things they were doing. And so very spiritual-minded, worshiping the wrong things, but very spiritual-minded. Many gods, uh, gods of everything, and of course an understanding of the demon world as well. And really their entire life was interlinked with gods and spirits. Everything they did was connected to a god. Uh, gods and goddesses of war and justice and love and fertility and peace and their feasts and their social events and all that centered around the worship of gods and goddesses. There wasn't really, I mean, you could really say this, there wasn't really anything going on socially that wasn't related to a god or a spirit during the time of Paul's writing to the Corinth. 
So one of the situations that could come up here in Corinth is you had this new believer. His life has been saturated with the worship of idols up until the point he came to faith. He comes into the church. Uh, there are some mature believers there, and they're going to they're going to go to the market and they're going to buy a slightly used meat, a piece of meat at a discount price. And when I see slightly used, I mean it went in the front door of the of the temple of a false god, and it came out the back door. And these mature believers know there isn't any god. There isn't a god in that temple. Nothing's defiling that meat. Someone brought the meat to offer to this particular god or goddess. And the priests bring it out, and they go and sell it to some small butcher shop on the corner or the market. And so maybe it's some great cut of meat, maybe it's a T-bone steak, maybe it's you know, lamb chops or, or uh, you know, a ham or some nice plump chicken or whatever. Okay, it went into the front door of this false uh, temple, the false god, and it comes out the back and gets sold in the market. And the strong believer, he goes out, and he sees it there, and it's a good price, and, and so he's going to buy it, he's going to have a big barbecue, and he's going to invite a bunch of people over, and the new believer's invited. And so he shows up, and he just comes in, and he sees all this meat, and he's making some inquiries, and he's just cringing because all this stuff is really just distasteful to him, and it all, he's all, all he's used to and all he knows is false gods, false worship, uh, the sacrifice of meat to this false god, and, and he remembers all those feelings associated with false worship, and he just says, you know, I don't want anything to do with any of this. And it would be easy for the strong believer to say, hey, you know, what's an idol? I mean, come on, it's nothing. There's no, there's no such thing. You know, nobody home. So what's the big deal? You know, just eat up. It will be delicious. And you, you can't believe how low a price it was. So we've got plenty. Come on. And so you have some conflict. See? And the weak believer could just as easily have been a Jew with all his dietary restrictions as he was a brand new believer from Corinth. And so he's just abhorred at all this nastiness going on around him. He doesn't want to touch any of this stuff. And it just, it's anathema to him. So... He doesn't want to do it, and so there's some conflict. And so, obviously, some wrangling going on in the church about who will and who won't and whether we should or whether we shouldn't and all of that. And just as a footnote, when they would offer a sacrifice to this false god, they would go in to some particular god or goddess at some particular time, and they were, they were doing this all the time. And you would offer an animal and typically divide it into three parts. The first part was burned on the altar, and, and uh, it went up, as it were, to the false god. The second part uh, was the priests. And so... Uh, you know, it supported the priesthood of that God. He, he, you know, he, he could uh, go back, he could eat it if he wanted to, and uh, if he didn't need it, if he had more than he needed, and, and they normally did, he'd just go right out at the back of the temple, put it in the butcher shop, sell it to the butcher, and it'd get sold on the open market. And the third part of the meat, uh, the guy who offered it took back home with him, and so he shared in the worship, he shared in the sacrifice of whatever the deity it was. And so a believer is out, and he wants to buy some meat, and so he does. And he wonders where the meat came from. You know, if the priest of some deity had this relationship with this little uh, butcher shop that he really likes, and uh, he may find out that there's a direct connection. He may say, you know, I'm not going to buy meat, offer to idols. And so he doesn't. He doesn't even go in there. And, um, and another Christian comes by and says, you know, what's the difference? What's an idol? I'm snagging this. This is a great bargain. And so off he goes. And so the situation can play out in a number of different ways. Your believer and an unsafe friend says to you, now listen, this can happen so easily. You know, I'd like you to come over and have, you know, have dinner at our house. This is an unsafe friend, okay? You're a believer. He says, you know, I want you to have dinner at our house. You know, we, we really just appreciate you guys as friends. And, you know, you're talking with your spouse. Hey, you know, um, yeah, this would be a great time to witness, you know. And so you say to this unsafe believer, you say, yeah, sure. You know, uh, we would love to come over because we've, you know, we've just made the most important decision of our lives. You know, we're, we're in pyramid marketing and we want to share it with you or whatever, you know. No, it, 
I'm not talking about that. Um, I'm t- that. We came to faith. You know, you're thinking to your wife, we came to faith, we want to share it with them, you know. Um, and so, so, you know, you're going you're gonna to go and, uh, uh, and you go over there and you sit down to dinner and you open up your sack lunch. And, you know, the, the non-believers are looking at you like, you know, why'd you bring your own food? I mean, and you're like, well, you know, uh, we just feel like it would really be defiling to eat what you're going to serve us, you know, because it was offered to idols. And um, your opportunity is toast. The opportunity you had to witness to that person is gone. They, you just crossed your name off the social contacts list for good. They're not having you back over. That's the knowledge Paul said you had. An idol is nothing. An yeah, idol is nothing. There's nothing wrong with the meat offered to it. So he tells you, you know, listen, have this knowledge. Somebody invites you over. Go. An idol is nothing. Every social event, beloved, is tied to these gods. Most of the festivals, social events took place in the temple. You have received an invitation, like many, from the period that might say one that was dug up. It says, Antonius, the son of Poltimaeus, invites you to dine with him at the table of our god, Serapis. You may receive an invitation like that. Well, translated, our god Serapis was the god Serapis, or our lord Serapis is the god Serapis, a blend of an Egyptian god and the Greek culture. So they're telling you, they're inviting you over, and you're going to have dinner up at the temple as a worship offering to Serapis. It's going to be a social event. You're a Christian. You get an invitation. What do you do? Do you go out and eat meat offered to an idol, or don't you? Do you go and have an opportunity to interact with these people and perhaps present God, or do you stay away? Does God want Corinthians to group themselves in some monastic lifestyle and become vegetarian? And what are, they, what are they supposed to do? When you become a believer, is that the end of all social things? That's a tough problem. Even the weddings were connected to idol worship. Meat offered to idols would be there to be consumed. What if your unsaved brother's getting married? He's a pagan. You care about him. You care about the unsaved family. Do you go? Do you stay away? So those are hard things to reconcile. See, they're trying to figure out whether they could do the things the world did. Not whether they could do the things... The world did that the Bible says they're not to do, that would be wrong. And that's the easiest part of saying no. If the Bible says no, you can say no, and you have no problems, and you shouldn't compromise that. The issue here is whether they could do the things the Bible doesn't address. That's the issue. Can they wear pants? Can they wear shorts to church? Can they swim together or dance or cut their hair or wear a beard or, or drink or smoke or listen to rock music or go see a movie? Can they do those things? And I know some of you are hearing me say some of these things, and in your mind, you're imagining some scripture that you think applies to that. And we're going to deal with that in a couple of weeks, okay? We'll make sure that we apply the scripture correctly, all right? But all the way down the line, because that's what our culture does. And if, the God, and if God doesn't say anything negative about it, we have to decide whether we can do it or not. That's the issue. That's the issue Paul is bringing up here. That's why it's so relevant for us as a church. Because here in Corinth, you have... Strong believers who know all their freedom, they have knowledge, they're right about the freedom they have. It's correct, there's nothing wrong with meat offered to idols. It's correct, there's no other idol, there's no other God. The meat's not contaminated, it's okay to consume it, no big deal. Okay, they're right about that. And then you have weak believers sitting in the corner. They just don't understand all of this. Why would anybody want to eat something that was offered to a false God? And that sounds reasonable, doesn't it? And whether it's the first century or today, Paul's going to give the church a solution. He's going to say, your liberty has a limit. 
as it works its way out in the church. And the limit to your liberty is what? What's it say? Love. The limit to your liberty is love. Now, as we get ready to close for today, I, I, I've given you the first principle Paul has given you, that decision concerning the freedom of Christ. That principle is, who does my decision affect? It's the first thing you can think about. As you think about the, your freedom in Christ and all the things we've talked about and many of the things that I don't know about that you are dealing with, as you think about those freedoms in Christ, things the Bible doesn't directly address, you can have this idea in your mind as you first start to look at it, who does my decision affect? Because that's Paul's first stop here. Who's going to be harmed by what you say is okay? Because if somebody's going to be harmed, then your limit to your freedom is love. Limit to your freedom is not whatever I want to do, I'm going to do because I'm free to do it in Christ. Limit to your freedom is how will this affect someone who is watching me, who is a weaker believer, and now I have to look at that through love and not offend them because Christ died for them as well as for me. And so as the Corinthians are pondering you know, who those believers would be that they would affect, they would limit their expression of freedom based on the love they are to have for fellow believers. And we're going to look at that next week, Lord willing, and kind of really dig into the passage as we've set this stage. So we have this principle of effect. Who does my freedom affect? And before we close, I'd like to give you a list, as I told you before, of some principles that can help you make some of these decisions. I want to get it a little bit broader than just who does my decision affect, because there are more to it than that, okay? Uh, and we're going to take some time and look at some of the verses, and they'll be linked together. And some of these verses uh, that you're going to see and some of these principles are uh, kind of harken back to Philippians 4, 8, and 9. And as I told you, verses that can help you make these decisions. So who does my decision affect? That's the first question you're going to ask yourself, okay? Principle number two, is it beneficial? So usually you think about your freedom in Christ and what you'd like to add to your life. Think about this. Is it beneficial? And that's really from 1 Corinthians 6, 12. And I'll go slowly so you can copy these down. I think these are really important. Beloved, most of the time I bump into Christians, I ask them why, or why not they're allowing some certain thing in their life. And they can't give me any real set of reasons that they use to reason it out and that, okay, I came to this decision because this. I went through these things and I said, okay, this is okay. And so I just want to show you that the scripture is not silent on how to make these decisions. Paul's going to deal with who does my decision affect? And if it affects someone, I deal with them in love. There's some more things here too, and we'll just bump into them and then I will just refer them from time to time as we go through. Who does my decision affect? Principle number two, or uh, is it beneficial? Principle number two. 1 Corinthians 6, 12, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. Now, we looked at that as we looked at 1 Corinthians 6, and you remember that. Just this, will it have a negative effect, or will it have a positive effect? This thing that I'm going to add to my life or not add to my life, this freedom that I have in Christ, not something God has said no to already, but something that's a gray area. Will it rob me, or will it benefit my life? Will it make me a more effective believer? Just the issue, is it beneficial? to my life. Principle number three, can it bring me into bondage? And that's the last part of 1 Corinthians 6, 12. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Some things can take you captive. Has it taken other people captive? That's one of the questions you can ask yourself. This freedom in Christ, has it taken other people captive? Will it take me captive? Could it take me captive? Can it bring me into bondage? So, who does my decision affect? Is it beneficial? Can it bring me into bondage? These are questions you can ask as you think about your freedom in Christ. These are very biblical ways to go about this decision making. Principle number four. Is it excess baggage? 
That really takes us from Hebrews 12.1. I love this verse. I don't think we look at it enough as we think about how we go about our life. But think, listen to it. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, that's intimidating as right off the start, isn't it? Think about your life as you walk through this life on this time of earth. You have invisible witnesses who watch you every step of the way. Isn't that marvelous? Believers who've gone on before who get to watch what you're doing and how you manage your life. So you have a big cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Because that's the case, and there'll be some judgments rendered from believers who've gone on before because there'll be righteous judgments. Man, what is he doing that for? Why would he do that? I did that. I completely messed up my life. Those kinds of conversations. Let us also lay aside every encumbrance. That's the whole reason why the writer of Hebrews says the next part. Because others are watching, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. If you're a sports guy, if you ran track, or if you did any of these things, listen, when you get ready to run the 400, you're not picking up some stuff to carry along with you. Those 400s are, run in, are won in margins of tenths and hundreds of seconds. And you want to make sure you're running with the lightest weight you can. And when I went, back when I was in school, some of you were old, remember this, we used to put ankle weights and arm weights on. You guys remember that when you would run? And you, you know, now they do parachutes and drag a tire. Okay? It's not the whole lot different. Okay? But back, in fact, we would do that so that when we got all done working out that day, we took them off and felt like light as a feather. Right? We used to have those shoes in basketball that had the big platform under the ball of your foot and nothing under the heel. So all that would do was just work your calves, and we'd work out all day in basketball that way. You know, those kinds of things. We did that so that when it came time to play a game, we put on the regular stuff, we felt light, we felt empowered. See? And I think that's the, what we've got going on here. Is this excess baggage? As I look at the freedoms that I have and I can have in my life, is this particular thing that I'm thinking about, is it excess baggage? Is it something I really should put away? Is it something I should put down? Instead of picking it up, should I get rid of it? Is it just going to drag me down? Is there going to be weight dragging along behind me? Do I need this in my life? Principle number five. Will I look like my Savior if I do it? Will I look like my Savior if I do it? 1 John 2, 6. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. That's the whole what would Jesus do thing. Okay? Will I look like my Savior if I do this thing? Will the thing that I'm free to do Make me a closer reprint of Jesus? Yes or no? When people look at me, will they see my Savior if I'm doing this? Or will I have to explain myself on a regular basis? See, And that's the, that's the pinch that some believers get themselves into. I'm going to go ahead and do this. And then when another believer comes up and says, man, this really doesn't seem to resemble Christ too much. Yeah, but I'm free to do this. And this is why I do this. Okay? They've got to do this lengthy explanation to make sure they understand why you allowed this in your life. Will I look like my Savior if I do it? Will this thing I'm free to do make me close, a closer reprint of Jesus? Principle number six. Will it affect my ability to witness? And that's very close to the one we just looked at. And you'll see these overlap a good bit, okay? Will it affect my ability to witness? And that's really from Colossians 4, 5. Conduct yourself with wisdom towards outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Is this something that I want to do in my freedom going to enhance my testimony to those in the world? Will it enhance my ability to witness? Will it erode or enhance my evangelistic platform? Which one? It's going to do one or the other, okay? If it enhances your evangelistic platform, that's a no-brainer, isn't it? Because it's also going to make you look like your Savior, too. And it won't be excess baggage, and it's not going to bring you into bondage, and 
it's going to be beneficial. And the effect it has on other believers is going to be positive. So all of those become okay, see. Will it affect my ability to witness? Romans 12, 17, remember Paul says, respect what's right in the sight of all men. Here's the thing, beloved. It matters what the world thinks about what you do. What the culture around me thinks about what I do. Testimony is a huge issue. If I undermine it, will I have to explain my actions or will it build a platform for the gospel? Which one? Principle number seven. What will, I do, will what I do make God look great? Not the same as, will, you know, is it a reprint of my Savior? Will what I do make God look great? 1 Corinthians 10.31. As Paul kind of sums up this section, we'll look at this in a few weeks. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Will what I do bring glory to God? Will people see his attributes and what I allow in my life? Or if I do this, will I exalt the Lord? Or is it just neutral? Is it not exalting the Lord? It's not bringing the Lord into, uh, you know, into shame? Is it just neutral? So which one is it? Will it glorify the Lord? Will it, how will it affect my witness? Will I look like my Savior if I do it? Is it excess baggage? Can it bring me into bondage? Is it beneficial? Who does my decision affect? And principle number eight, last one. What is the experience of mature believers around me? So in other words, you have this freedom thing you're struggling with, whether you should do this thing or not. Philippians 4.9, the things you have learned and received, Paul says, and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So things you've learned from me, Paul says, Paul taught them positive commands, negative commands. You've received that, you've heard it, you've seen me in action, you've watched my life, what I do, what I do to practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Guess what? There are believers around you who are older in the faith than you and have a lot more experience than you do. Walk in the walk, Okay. Find them. Ask them what they think. What do you think about if I allow this in my life? What do you think this will be? Will this be a good thing? Will this be a bad thing? Is it going to positively affect my witness? Will it you know, make God look great? You know, will I look like my Savior if I do it? You know, ask them what they think. Paul said, 2 Timothy 2.2, The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses... And trust these two faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That's the principle of discipleship. It's a handing down of not only the basics of Scripture and of the gospel and of life, but of freedom, too. It's all of those things. There are people who are older than you in the faith, who've walked longer than you in the faith, who are stronger than you in the faith. Ask them what they think about what you want to do, and then listen to what they say. They may have some insight you don't have, and even better, they may have some perspective on your life that you don't have how people are perceiving you and how this will change that perception or enhance that perception. Proverbs 27, 17, it's a great passage. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. You've got a resource. Use the resource. I wanted to give you these in addition to our first stop in our passage by way of an introduction to give you some tools that may be helpful to you. I hope that they are. I hope you can use them. They may or may not feel helpful at this point, particularly if you're doing something you know you shouldn't be doing. They may put you under a guilt trip. It wasn't my intention, but if that's how it worked out, then that's how it worked out. But the tools, I think, can be helpful. The principles on gray areas. First, of course, make sure it's a gray area. Know the word well enough to know that it hasn't been prohibited, okay? And so that's the first stop. Make sure you understand that it is definitely a gray area and not something that's been the Lord has said no to. 
Who will your decision affect? How will it affect them? Then deal with them in love. Is it beneficial? Can it bring me into bondage? Is it excess baggage? Will I look my, like my savior if I do it? How will it affect my ability to witness? Will it, what I do make God look great? And then finally, what is the experience of mature believers in Aston? All right, this is the direction we're going for this, uh, these two chapters and some that I think is so relevant for the church, so beneficial, so helpful for them to avoid, for the church to avoid conflict, to avoid offense, and to grow in maturity. Because we obviously don't want to stay at the weak level, but we also don't want to offend those who are weak, but we all want to grow. And so as we deal in grace, perhaps those who are weak learn to grow also and learn the knowledge along with the love to deal with one another. Okay, so that's where we're headed. I hope that's going to be an encouragement to you. It certainly is to me as I read it and study it and pass it on to you. Let's pray and be dismissed. Lord, we thank you today for an opportunity to be in your word again. We're so grateful for your love to us, for your great mercy on us, for clearly giving us what we need. Your Bible contains the things we need for life and conduct. Father, I pray that we'll continue to dig in many, many, many applications here much more than we can make in our time that we have to teach on Sunday morning. So, Father, I pray that you'll continue to help uh, the ones who know you follow your word and dig in and make some decisions as we look at the principles that we have, really eight principles in general, perhaps more, but eight that can really be effective in helping us to make the right decisions for our life as we want to model you, we want to make you look good, we don't want to erode our testimony, we don't want to hurt other believers. We want to be a reprint of you. We don't want to be brought into bondage by the things we allow. No one, at, as they come into allowing a freedom in their life, no believer looks back uh, or says, I, I fully intend for this to bring me into bondage. Everybody thinks they won't be brought into bondage. Father, I pray that you give us wisdom and right understanding about our life. Is it going to be beneficial? Is it excess baggage? Father, just bring those questions to our mind as we think about these decisions to allow or not allow things in our life. It's only so temporary. And we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses who understand how temporary this life is and how long the next life will be prepared for service in your kingdom. And so, Father, I pray that you prepare your people that we might walk circumspectly. Father, we thank you today for the fellowship, for the giving, for the prayer, for the musical worship, these things that we participate in, which we desire to focus on you. Lord, help us to focus. Encourage us as we go out, our one job as we go out. That great commission, that's all of our job. As the church grows, we know that those who go out will be witnesses. I pray that we'll be faithful witnesses, both in life, in conduct, and then in word. Speaking the truth, giving understanding of all that's occurred on the cross and the resurrection. Father, for your rich blessing on us, we're grateful. Take us out this week that we might be effective witnesses and faithful servants of yours until we see your son. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen. amen.